3: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And our next story comes from our regular contributor, Kent Nurburn. Kent is the author of Letters to My Son, A Father's Wisdom on Manhood, Life, and Love which is a compilation of letters written to his own son should Kent not live to see him into manhood. Today, Kent shares with us another one of his lessons. It's called Craig's Lesson.
4: Most young people I know, and many who are older, live in a quiet crisis of identity about their place in the world. Some, especially young women, spend their lives submerging their interests into the interests of others, until they are not sure whether they have any identity at all. Others, very often young men, try desperately to impress others by parading their accomplishments and sense of self-importance in an attempt to make themselves seem somehow whole and finished. Still others of both sexes spend their time passing a brittle judgment on others they perceive as different or lesser than they are in an attempt to establish their own identity at the expense of others. At the heart of each is the fear that someone else might pass judgment on who they are and that they will be unmasked or found out for the uncertainty that is at their core. When I was younger, I was as plagued with this fear as anyone else. Often I would dare not to act for fear of someone judging me, other times, I forced myself into the center of discussions in a pitiful attempt to make sure I was recognized for everything I thought or did. I excluded others. I demeaned others. I pointed out their weaknesses and inconsistencies as a way of raising myself by lowering those around me. Sometimes I was aware of it. Other times, I was not. It took a chance comment by a friend of mine long after I had reached adulthood before I could begin to lift myself out of the uncertainty that surrounded my sense of self. Craig was a close friend of mine. He was one of those people who brought energy and life into any room he entered. He had an uncanny ability to focus his entire attention on you while you were talking, so you suddenly felt more important and more responsible than you had before he started listening. He made you better by being around him, people loved him. He and I went to graduate school together. We had a lot in common. We both were having women troubles. We both were seekers. We both were perhaps too aware of our own foibles for our own good. But he lived in the sunlight of the spirit, while I lived under a full moon. We were like mirrors to each other, revealing dimensions of our beings that otherwise we never would have seen. One sunny autumn day, we were sitting in our study areas, half talking and half working on some now-forgotten projects for our graduate degrees. I was staring out the window when I noticed one of my professors walking across the parking lot. He had been away all summer, and we had not parted on good terms. I had taken great offense at some suggestion he had made, and had, in turn, given great offense in my answer. We had not seen each other since that day. Damn it, I said to Craig, I don't want to see him. Why not, Craig asked. I explained what had happened the previous spring. We left on bad terms, I said. Besides, the guy just doesn't like me. Craig walked over and looked down at the passing figure. I think you got it wrong, he said. You're the one who's turning away, and you're just doing that because you're afraid. He probably thinks you don't like him, so he's not acting warm toward you. People are like that. They like people who like them. If you show him you're interested in him, he'll be interested in you. Go down and talk to him. Craig's words smarted. I walked tentatively down the stairs into the parking lot. I mustered my best smile and warmest feelings, and greeted my professor and asked how his summer had been. He looked at me, genuinely surprised at my warmth, and put his arm over my shoulder. We walked off talking. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see Craig at the window, smiling broadly. It was so simple, yet I had never seen it. I was coming to all my encounters with a fear that others were judging me, when, in fact, they were afraid I was judging them. We were all living in a fear of being judged by the other, while the empty space between us was waiting to be filled by a simple gesture of honest caring. People like people who like them. Those words allowed me to see the world through new eyes. Instead of seeing judgment in the eyes of others, I saw need. Not deep, yawning need, but the simple human need to be noticed and cared about. I began to realize that most people were not waiting to judge the adequacy of my actions. They were waiting for the chance to share something about themselves. Craig knew this. He basked in people as if basking in sunlight. Their lives warmed him, and they loved sharing themselves with him. That was what made him so special. From that day forward, I turned my life around. It was not easy. I still spent too much time fearing the judgment of others, and I still got hurt when arrogant people took advantage of my openness and used it either to laugh at me or to demean me. But I found that by taking the chance and liking other people, the world opened up before me. I discovered a world of people I would never have known had I kept only to my own interests. Car mechanics, cashiers, crazy people, thieves, all had their stories to tell. The wealthy, the poor, the powerful, and the lonely— All were as full of dreams and doubts as I was. Farmers talked to me about tractors. Scientists spoke to me about atoms. I learned what it is like to grow up on the Australian coast. And I learned how it feels to pack boxes all day long. If you are the one who reaches out, if you are the one who dares to like people, the walls around you will fall away.
3: And great job on that, Monty. A special thanks to Kent Nurburn. He's the author of Letters to My Son, A Father's Wisdom on Manhood, Life, and Love. Kent Nurburn's story, Craig's lesson, here on Our American Story. <music> Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, And we return to our American stories. Up next, a story about a man who had an extraordinary impact on American music, writing bluegrass and gospel standards such as I'll fly away and turn your radio on. Here's our own Monty Montgomery with a story.
6: Albert E. Brumley was born on October 29th, 1905. Here's his granddaughters, Betsy and Elaine, to tell the rest of the story.
1: Grandpa grew up in a little town in Oklahoma. He was born near Spargo, Oklahoma, close to Rock Island, Oklahoma. He grew up really poor. His family were sharecroppers, and they sharecropped cotton. You know, if you've ever been picked cotton, if you've ever cotton. done that, it's terrible. It's awful. It hurts. I mean, because I
7: remember doing it as a school experiment when exactly. I was a kid. I don't know why they had us do that. <laughs> You know, the
1: pricks and from the thorns or whatever those little sticky things are. But that was his childhood, but it was musical because his dad played instruments and uh, taught him how to love music, and he played the piano. And we really hated picking cotton. <laughs> Didn't like the life, which is one of the reasons he decided to uh, move toward the music in Hartford, Arkansas. I've heard two different stories. The one that I grew up hearing was he walked over from... Spyro and his home farm to Hartford with, you know, it varies, but around two, $2.50 or so. Not much money in his pocket at all. Um, Hartford is like actually
7: 28 miles from, mm-hmm. from Spyro, so the fact that he walked 28 miles to go to school, to me, shows some mighty determination. Which I think when he knocked on Ian Bartlett's door and told him he wanted to learn music is what really sold Ian Bartlett on the fact that this guy had something. Which is why Ian Bartlett allowed him to sleep on his couch instead of pay tuition. So he kind of sponsored him in a way. Mm-hmm. And of course, the repayment was that he would have to come work for him after he taught him you know, how to, how to write music to pay off the tuition debt.
6: But who was E.M.?
7: So Ian Bartlett was a songwriter. Um, he learned how to write songs from the Stamps Baxter Company and decided to go out on his own. And he began
1: the Hartford Institute in Hartford, Arkansas. And E.M. did a lot of things at that music school. He was a publisher as Mm -hmm. well as teaching music.
6: Music he would teach at temporary singing schools set up in small communities across the country for the purpose of educating poor rural Americans on the basics of music. And tuition was paid for by buying E.M.'s songbooks
7: that's how like grandpa made money or not everyone that worked for the Hartford Music Institute made money was by going to sell these songbooks Mm -hmm. so people would attend school Mm -hmm. and as you got more popular and your songs became more popular you were assigned a page in those songbooks
1: and as we know grandpa was pretty prolific when he was writing his music and EM taught him the basics of how to do it but the talent of course came from grandpa He wrote a lot of songs in those convention books. He was one of the, I guess I'm going to use the words, most famous Mm -hmm. contributors to these convention song books.
7: I mean, if you want a list of songs, I mean, there's I'll Fly Away, I'll Meet You in the Morning, If We Never Meet Again, Turn Your Radio On, "Ring Strangers
1: to Me. Did I say Jesus Hold my hand? No. Um, (laughs) I can't remember. But Grandpa wrote I'll Fly Away over a a period of time. It wasn't something he just sat down and did. And one of the things that's pretty unique about Grandpa, I'll just throw this in here, uh, was he wrote the notes... Uh, the, of the music along with the words. Not many people these days, there are so many co-writers. Well, and he wrote, wrote them right to left. Right to left, exactly, which is uh, t- totally <laughs> which is crazy to think about. Yeah, but that's how he saw it. That's how it worked for him. And he was very particular about the message in the song and he wanted specific words and for Off Fly Away, I mean, I don't know if he knew this or not because we never discussed it, but it meant a lot to him with that song, I think. And it took him a while, four years to compose it and get it the words right and he would get stuck on one phrase or one word and if it didn't suit what his vision or meaning for the song was because what he wanted to do is paint a story for people mm-hmm. so they could see it in their mind and connect to it and feel it and then i guess in some way apply it to their life to help offer them hope and maybe purpose uplifts them a little bit uh in their day-to-day lives because you know people didn't have the things the luxuries of life they looked uh to each other and mm-hmm. community and music as um, a connection and so um, he, that was the beginning of off my way in the years he started that after he was with ian bartlett right yeah, i it was like
7: 28 or 29, 29. Mm-hmm. well and you know the thing is grandpa always called that a little ditty <laughs> he never really it was <laughs> never anything spectacular to him and, and grandma is actually the one who made him send it in because part of his deal with ian bartlett was that he had to send a song in a month because he was had a works for a higher contract which means part of his contract was one song per month so it could be submitted to a songbook. and um so he was looking for a song to su- submit one month and grandma was like why don't you su- submit this one because he never really thought he just called it he've always
1: referred to it as a little ditty it was never anything huge to him but he still was so particular about oh he's particular it. about everything he did that's true but he, he was very particular about that song. uh <laughs> but grandpa i do remember that grandma they always said grandma i don't know if the word forced is correct but she sure <laughs> urged him to get that song out there <laughs> for people to hear because she liked it and yeah. as we know a everybody of, likes it a couple of other people seem to like it
7: I think because it's easy and simple and happy, and it just and it's hopeful and it's easy to remember. You know, Grandpa always wrote, and he would say that if you can't come out singing the song, then it's not good enough, because you you have to be something that's memorable, something that people will remember. And another thing Grandpa used to say was that never you get too far from the people, and then you'll never be too far from the mainstream, because everything is about people. Mm-hmm. If you, it doesn't matter what you do, whether you write a song whether you sew clothes, it doesn't matter what, what you do. If, if people will not accept it and make that part of their lives, then it doesn't matter how good it is. So he always kept that in mind. It's like, will people sing it? Does it connect to people? Is this going to be something that they will remember? And I think I'll Fly Away is a very good example of that. I mean, what, 1976, We got we won an award. For All Fly Away being the most recorded song in history, gospel song in history at the time. And it was 726 times. And that means, when we say recorded, we mean licenses. And that was 1976. So here we what, 30,
1: 45 years later, and we're over 12,000 licenses. And when he first wrote it, it took a few years for it to become even mm-hmm. popular. And it was even recorded, but not until the Chuckwagon Gang recorded their recording and it just somehow connected with people plus things in the industry were changing from uh, convention singing and the things he did to more professional group performances but uh, they uh, made a recording of that and it just really took off and that's when the uh, awareness of the song went beyond Convention singing and church singing. Mm -hmm. It it was because the Chuck Wagon Gang is not necessarily only Christian music. They sing all kinds of music and they've been around for almost as long as we have Mm -hmm. and are in the second and third generation of their singing. And so there's a connection there that's lasted as well. And that started the road, and Grandpa was such a smart man, he recognized the shift in the industry and began to do more of the publishing, and that's when he was moving toward his own publishing company and bought Hartford and did all these other things. And so Off Away was obviously a part of that. It's become part of the fabric of America, and the world even. I mean, the Smithsonian has
7: named Grandpa the greatest American. They did use this. They said the greatest white songwriter before World War II which I don't know why they made Extinction, but they did. And, of course, Off the is now in the Library of Congress as well, along with "Rank Strangers. So, you know, I don't know if there's not many songwriters who have two songs in the Library of Congress.
3: And you've been listening to the story of Albert E. Brumley as told by his granddaughters, Elaine and Betsy. And his ditties, indeed, are masterpieces. And staying close to the people... And making sure that it's a memorable melody, well, we learned that about Irving Berlin too. Stay close to the people, make sure they can hum it, and then sing it after hearing it once. By the way, our Irving Berlin piece is beautiful, and you can go to ouramericanstories.com and listen to it in so many ways, though these men came from different places. One from New York City, one from Oklahoma, and Arkansas. Their stories are the same American story. When we come back, more of Albert E. Brumley's story, a uniquely American story and a great music and art story and so much more here on Our American Story. And we return to Our American Stories and our story on Albert E. Brumley, the man who wrote many classic American bluegrass and gospel standards such as I'll Fly Away and Turn Your Radio On. When we last left off, Albert had got his start in music at the Hartford Music Company after walking there with just $2 in his pocket, and Albert would soon form his own company. Here again are his granddaughters Elaine and Betsy with his story.
7: So grandpa started uh, um, what he called Albert E. Bromian Sons, his own publishing company in 1944. And he started writing for himself, and he was also writing for Stan Baxter and for Hartford still at the time, but he went back and purchased all of Hartford so he could get all of his songs back, and that ended up in 1948 when we got all of that. Started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we got 100%, because it was different people had owned portions of it, so he bought each percentage from each person to own 100% of Hartford. And because of his relationships with people, we printed books for literally everybody. I mean, we printed songbooks for the Opry, we printed songbooks for Louisiana Hayride, we printed songbooks for the Renfro Valley, Ozark Jubilee, Bob Wills. The groups. The all the, the, the groups. Group. Charlie Humbard. We printed songbooks for everybody. So over these years that we've had this, we've sold just our own books that we've made, plus our own books we made for ourselves and sold, which we used to sell in the National Enquirer of all things. We did, we sold millions of them, and we've sold them all over the world. We've sold over 40 million songbooks, and we've made over 100 million songbooks. Because Grandpa was genius, the man, he was smart. So I like to say he invented iTunes. That's just my own thing. But that's because Grandpa got, he made a contract with all those publishers around and everybody got a list of of all the songs that they owned. And he would send them to people like the Opry, the Louisiana Hayride, all those folks. Pick your favorite 150 songs, send me a list. We'll put them in a songbook, put your name on it, and you can sell it which is why we sold so many songs, we made so many songbooks because everybody would pick different songs that so would personalize, they would have their playlist of songs, we'd make it in a book, and then they would sell it with their name on the front, on their cover.
1: It was a brilliant shift over in the industry to be able to do that, yeah. And on the more personal side of this that I love, I love the songs and stuff, but you know, Grandpa was so artistic in so many ways. He helped create the illustrations on the covers of the books. So, the evidence of his folksy image, the way he was in real life was presented on the covers of these books with little log cabins and pine trees, which I love, and little church buildings. So, He was such a hands-on person. He had, from the beginning to end, he had an idea. And then uh, in the later days, in the 60s and 70s, uh, Dad and Bill, his older brother Bill, were the only ones really left at the company and they contributed and participated in the uh, creation and putting together these books, which is where we learned how to staple and stitch books. Uh, (laughs) Because we did do that on site for a long time. And I've packed so many books. But, you know, that was just part of the business. That's what we did in, the middle of nowhere. It was enough to where we even have a post office. There's like 10 people in Missouri which is where grandpa and grandma's house is and across the road is the business he built and a post office and but there used to be a thriving community there as well but the post office still exists because we shipped from that rural area all over the country one of the things that I was always impressed with was how he lays the books out he mm. had a specific way of laying them out with the numbers correlating like he loved the number 100 he put his song on there a lot of times That's because he, that's what his songbook book was when he had the convention style books
7: that was his number that was number uh-huh. one number one hundred.
1: I mean, uh huh. So he k- kept that connection and put him in those new books, and I think that kind of stuff is pretty cool. You know, the way he continued that tradition, really, mm-hmm. and and it meant something to him. So he named his kids after song people, and he kept the traditions of why gave him his beginnings and mm-hmm. the music. It it meant a lot to him, I think, because of his behaviors and yeah. showed it.
6: And over the years, because of his work. Albert developed long-lasting friendships with countless well-known musicians who would sometimes come over for dinner at his house in Powell, Missouri, where Elaine and Betsy would meet them.
1: I didn't know this was anything. Mm -mm. I didn't know about fame or celebrity. I didn't know they were famous people from Nashville. I I didn't know anything but what, what dad and grandpa did and uh what was normal life and the fact that those people came to the house they were just friends we just sat around the table and mm-hmm. ate it was mm-hmm. not
7: i mean it's all about food there i mean <laughs> i have a memory oh totally about food mm-hmm. but you know i have memory of sitting on ernest Tubbs' lap and he had, wearing his, his um his cowboy hat mm-hmm. and he ate my green beans because i hate green beans but i would get in trouble if i couldn't eat green beans but he, would, he ate my green beans so i would get in trouble I mean, I have that memory, but to me, that was nothing. It was like, oh man, I got somebody to eat my green beans. That's Mm -hmm. all I cared about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? Everybody came to the house. It never even occurred to me that they were famous, Mm -hmm. not even one time. And we can't Mm -hmm. not talk about the Hill and and Hollow. Hollow.
1: Yeah. We had what was called the hill and hollow folk festival where we had local arts and crafts and uh, local music and it was focused more on the, the gospel aspect on sundays and have gospel And there'd be you know we, there'd be a church service locally and as time moved on they decided to add in bluegrass and bring in some of those people that were famous that we didn't know were famous to sing on Saturday nights. He'd bring in the Opry stars like Ernest Tubb and Grandpa Jones, Jones the and Oz- Minnie Pearl. Oh, the the Oz- Oz- mm-hmm. All of everybody came. I mean, if you you can't not name a, an Opry star that wasn't in pal on the stage. And you had dinner with them because that's just what you, that's did. what you did. You made some homemade ice cream, had a conversation, picked a little. They went on stage and then you did it again. You know, you, you you jammed afterward, or you ate more, or whatever. Yeah, because they would they would just show up. I mean,
7: mm-hmm. the, I remember the buses coming mm-hmm. in and everything. Because down behind the stage, there's this low wire that goes to the barn. You have to hold, you have to get in the pickup truck and hold up the wire so the buses can go under. Mm-hmm. I love, I, mean, I used to that was my favorite part to see the wire. Who's going to get stuck on the wire? But like you know, the Thrasher Brothers got stuck mm-hmm. that one time. Mm-hmm. Blackwood Brothers, as far as the gospels are concerned, I, I mean, everybody was there. Everybody came. And sang on that stage. I mean, what, Marty Stewart was with um, Lester Flatt when he was, like, 17 mm-hmm. years old, mm-hmm. played on that stage.
1: Yeah, Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs and Marty.
7: Marty and, oh, golly, geez. I can't even think of them because they're just, like, there. But anybody back, George Lindsay came one time. Mm-hmm. I remember Goober showed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That was weird. But also industry people showed up. So it wasn't just the stars showing. It, everybody would say, I'm going to Brumley. Whether it be The Sing or the Hill and Hollow, they would always show up because it was such a good time.
1: And uh, it was just whether they were from New York or you know 30 miles away, it meant something for people to gather at these events and mm-hmm. connect and get away and relax and enjoy. Well, and Grandpa was very particular too. I mean, mm-hmm. he did not like to leave Pal. He
7: didn't, I mean, Mm-mm. even to get awards and stuff, he'd be like, whatever. But I do remember the story when he went down to see Governor Jimmy Davis.
6: The governor of Louisiana who wrote the song, You Are My Sunshine.
7: And they were down there in the governor's mansion, and um, he served fried chicken, and they were everybody's all nervous. And grandpa was grandpa; was his grandpa. he had a chicken leg, put his elbows up on the up on the table, and just start eating. And everybody's like, oh, thank goodness. And then it, everything was fine. And then cause everybody, all the nerves were gone, you know. Because Grandpa was just Grandpa. He was
1: relaxed. It, he he just, wasn't stressed about anything. No. And, and he didn't want the limelight either. Mm-mm. Remember, he was either off behind the stage or sitting on some... He liked to sit on stairs. Yep. Sit on the or stairs squat. or squat on sit off to the side to watch what was going on around. He would talk to anybody that came mm-hmm. up, but he never really went up on stage very often. Mm-mm. even at whatever event we were at, he was he just preferred that relaxed everything is okay i'm eating my chicken leg with my elbows on the table Kind very of thing. laid back very laid back yeah and people loved that because they didn't have to put on a face they could be themselves yeah. around him that whole authentic self thing you, you couldn't help it because that's just it's true. who he was
3: and you're listening to the granddaughters of albert e brumley tell his life story And in a way, the granddaughters are telling their own because these stories are so intertwined in this remarkable American story and this remarkable American family. When we come back, more from the granddaughters. And by the way, if you've got grandkids, empower them to tell your family's story. Empower them early, because my goodness, to not know your family's story, for better or for worse, is a crime. When we come back, more of this remarkable American story. Albert E. Brumley's here on Our American Story. And we return to Our American Stories and the final segment of our story on American composer Albert E. Brumley, an also American entrepreneur, is told by his granddaughters Betsy and Elaine. In 1970, Albert would be inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Association Hall of Fame, becoming a charter member of that organization, which according to the granddaughters was something he really enjoyed going to. Let's continue with the story.
7: Okay, so here's what happened. (laughs) So he he goes, and Grandpa left Pal for like five reasons, and that was one of them. Grandpa, like Elaine was saying, no limelight, not his thing. He would sit in the back of the room, and Grandpa'd hold a cup of coffee in the by the bowl in his palm, and that's how he would drink. So he would lean up against the back wall, very unassuming. You don't know who he is. He doesn't make a fuss. That's just how he spent most of his time. But this young songwriter had just got some award. I have no idea what it was. He came up and said, Man, look what I just did, blah, blah, blah. And he was so excited about it. He said, Dude, what's your name? He goes, I'm Albert Brumley. He goes, Man, have you written anything I know? He said, I'll fly away. And the guy goes, Oh, <laughs> and just walked off. <laughs> I mean, but Grandpa was fine. He just,
1: you know, he just did his thing, he never made a fuss. And he ate weird stuff. He ate weird stuff and slept weird. And he was an eccentric by today's standards, Mm -hmm. the way I remember him when I was really small. It was normal. Mm -hmm. But now when you talk about it, it's it's just humorous. It's funny. Because he did eat funny things and different things that what we normally eat, like buttermilk on Wheaties or tomato juice on Wheaties. Oh, and, and the treat that was in the, oh, God. Oh, yeah, he like to slice a can of, it, it wasn't called Spam then. Well, it, it, it was made treat, be, but wasn't this was it? treat, yeah. Oh. Which is another kind of canned meat product. Mm-hmm. And it's a pork product that came in a tin can that had a key to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm and he'd leave it open in the fridge and then go slice them off when he wanted it mm-hmm. i hated that smell. at three o'clock in the morning many times yeah. mm-hmm. there's tons of stories and you know, when i was little before a lot of the other kids came along i would go down with grandma brumley on friday nights and grandpa would be in his room because he lo- he had a room right off the kitchen where he lived on this couch and i mean he slept there he ate there he did everything there But he would come out and he would stand because we weren't supposed to watch scary shows, but grandma would let me watch something called Dimension 16. (laughs) And that was on the UHF channel, which by the way, we had to run a wire from the house up to the top of the bluff behind the house to get the signal. And that's That's another story. (laughs) Um, to watch that but he would come out and just stand there he would never sit with us but he would just stand there and watch it a few minutes and he mosey to the bathroom wherever he was going and he would come back through and stand there for a few minutes and you know watch with us and go back to his couch and that was just my friday for a very long time that's how i spent my fridays my nights with grandma brumley and the snacks and all the things. and she I'd, make
7: cinnamon toast for you?
1: So, oh, And cocoa. We yeah, did that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And, and she let me sip her coffee, which was also a no Mm-hmm. And uh, never did take up the smoking that Grandpa mm. did, though. <laughs> <laughs> never cared for that. He would smoke a lot, or at least hold a lot of cigarettes. He would hold them while he was thinking, and they would burn down, and the ash would drop off, and there was a lot of cigarette burns on the table beside his couch where he laid them, and I have myself seen Grandma Go up to him with an ashtray and tap the cigarette into the ashtray so it wouldn't drop it all over the floor or something. And it was kind of something he would go, "Oh yeah," and then just keep on because his his mind was focused on whatever, whatever. And sometimes, and he he had a lot of thoughts and he would write them down on ice cream sticks and pieces of paper and lines for music, music notes and whatever, telephone bills. Te- oh, whatever he could get whatever his hands get his on. Hand on. Mm-hmm. And he always wanted a Cadillac. And I, when I was little. It, just, to, just to give you a picture, because we like to draw the pictures. There's We live out in the middle of the country with a two-lane road, and just across the street, literally, was where they started their business and built the buildings. Um, I don't know, 500 feet maybe? But it was across the two-lane highway. So Grandpa got his car, and um, he would get up in the morning when he was ready to go to work, and he would jump in the car and drive across the street and park it, and walk in the building. And then at lunch, he would jump in the car, drive across back to the house and go eat and take his nap and then he would do the same thing in the afternoon and that was his regimen the walking was not his thing he wanted to drive his car back and forth across the street but you know dad did the same did the same thing. exact thing yeah but that's what you did because you went to and from work mm-hmm. yep it's fun to think about those days yeah
6: Albert E. Brumley would pass away in 1977, leaving a legacy of over 800 songs, all penned by his hand. But only one of them can claim the title as the most recorded gospel song in all of history, that song being I'll Fly Away. And its legacy isn't lost on the family.
7: I I used to work for American Airlines because I wanted to travel and Dad said he wasn't paying for it. And I've literally heard I'll Fly Away all over the world because Kevin and I heard it in Fiji on our honeymoon. But I was in Australia on a bus, and nobody has a clue who I am. And I'm on the way to this, this um, cave thing, it's like 30 minutes outside town, and myself and my friend are the only Americans on the bus, everybody else is Australian. And they're singing Waltzing Matilda, and we're like, that's kind of cool, blah, blah, blah. But the next song they sang was I'll Fly Away. Now, they, again, they had no clue who I was, or, and I didn't say anything. But it's, like, it's so amazing to me, the impact of that song it's been recorded in every country mm-hmm. in every language on the planet we have a license for it until I keep you know getting new countries and then we have to go back but <laughs> it change the name changing the names <laughs> but um, that
1: song has has touched millions upon millions of people because the song is over 80 years old so it's been around long enough for generations of people to connect to it and sing to their grandchildren and their families, at funerals, at gatherings, at sings, and whatever, and Betsy's story in Australia, those things are motivational to keep it alive because it still does mean something. Mm -hmm. So whenever we can get it out there, like it was recently on a TV show, and they sang it, and I still got tears, and I still got the chills, and it's just still relevant. And Grandpa, as Betsy was saying, knew that was a factor in continuing things it, when it means something mm-hmm. to the people.
7: One of my favorite things is when people tell me their I'll Fly Away Stories. story because everyone has one. I have literally hugged people in the grocery store. I've cried with them. I've cried with them in the hospitals. I, a lady, a friend of mine, used that as her wedding march, which I thought was really interesting because I'd never heard that before. But that song brings back memories for people um, of things that they may have forgotten about, mm-hmm. but it like transports them to a place that, they, that is so special mm-hmm. and such a place in their heart that, that nothing else can get them there. And the fact that they're willing to tell me that story, because it really happens to me almost daily that someone tells me a story. Same here, yeah. I'm
1: always sharing stories.
7: So one of the ones that I have is that gentleman told us that he was in a car accident and he was being life-flighted out and he was dying. He and he he felt that he actually died. And he was singing I'll fly away to bring himself back so he would not die. So he sang that he sang himself back to life is what he was saying. He said, I just kept singing I'll fly away so I would not die. To know that that my name, that as a person in this world, represents something that that can literally change someone's life in a moment, Mm -hmm. is so huge. It's an honor Mm -hmm. to be able to be connected to something like that. And it's just that people tell us those stories. I mean, I'm serious, I've cried with so many Mm -hmm. strangers. I've had more people telling me those stories, especially in hospitals. I don't know how I end up in hospitals, but I tend to, well, I get hurt a lot. I do. I get in the emergency room a lot. I don't know why I'm, I'm danger, danger prone or whatever, accident prone, whatever. But people tell me their stories, and it, and I, I mean, I've just cried and cried with people. They've seen that to their to their loved ones when mm-hmm. they're older loved ones. I mean, we've done that in hospice. We've we've brought people into hospice, and to like the chuck wagon gang because we we still Elaine was saying work with them, brought them to hospice um, and people and they sing i Fly Away" and people have come out of their rooms, and it's like the nurses would like it's like. They haven't walked in a week, but they come out of their rooms to mm-hmm. sing and participate and be near that song. It, it's amazing to me the power of the melody that Grandpa conjured up out of <laughs> out of literally nowhere, out of a cotton field in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to move someone to to where, as they are literally slowly passing away, they are, have the strength to get up and they want to be near that song. That's amazing to me.
3: And a great job by Monty Montgomery on the production of that piece. A special thanks to Betsy and Elaine, the granddaughters of this great man, Albert E. Brumley. And a special thanks to Katrina Hine as well. And again, remember, he started as the son of sharecroppers in cotton fields in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma and walks his way to a new life and a life of art and music. And in the end, 40 million music books sold and the greatest and most recorded gospel song of all time, that, as you could hear from the granddaughters, touched millions. We love telling these stories because it connects American history with the American present and everything in between. A special thanks to any granddaughter, any grandkid who wants to keep the story of their family alive. The Albert E. Brumley story here on Our American Stories.